Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, February the 7th, 2022. It is currently 1.14 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And I know it's Monday, so typically I'm not here, but I I decided, you know what, I'm going to pack everything up and drive out to the church and at least do one live broadcast today because I wanted to try to guide you in a certain direction with the Bible study exercise this week. Now, I I had a debate with myself. I thought, okay, wait a minute. Should I wait to the end of the week to bring all of this up, or should I just go ahead and include it now? And the more I thought about it, I, I, I kind of I, this is kind of my thinking, just so that you kind of understand why we're doing this. I felt that in the introduction, I gave you plenty of things to work on, right? I gave you, you know, all the different verses I want you to look up, the different categories to place those in, and, you know, preparing for hard times, enduring hard times, all of those, all of the different things that we talked about. And I think that will, that will keep you busy and that will kind of get you focused on at least one, one, one major theme for this week's Bible study exercise. So, so I've already given you that assignment. Hopefully you've already been working on it. At least one of our listeners, one of our listeners from Tennessee, Will, he already sent me his completed homework. He, he, he did, or did probably about 95% of it. I think there may be one or two things he didn't do yet, but he, I think that that's the main part that I asked for. So he sent me, I'll put it this way. He sent me all the verses. Anything else I asked for, it wasn't on that, but he sent me all the verses. So that is awesome. That's encouraging. That's a, that's a, a good way to start the week it is, is people uh, already turning in their assignments and participating in the Bible study exercise. But as you're focusing on hard times, finding all of these verses, hopefully you're reading the text in Genesis 41. Hopefully you've been reading all of the verses. There is, there's something I saw yesterday when I was kind of giving you the introduction and trying to get you started And I got ready to read it and I stopped myself. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going, I'm not going to mention that. I'm going to skip that because I want everyone focused on, you know, these uh, thinking about and finding verses related to hard times and how difficult times in your life can be a spiritual pitfall. That's very basic, very fundamental, but so very important because when people experience hard times, it can be devastating to one's spiritual life if they're not in, in my in my estimation, biblically prepared, because I think there's lots of, a lot of teaching within the church that really makes people vulnerable to how devastate, uh, to, to make them vulnerable, vulnerable to hard times being very devastating, devastating to their spiritual life. Yeah, this is going to be devastating if I can't speak correctly today. All right. So, um, I, I, I really wanted you to go in that direction, but it, it's Monday now. It's Monday. I know what you're thinking, but I'm still working on everything else. That's fine. Keep working on everything else. But just take a little time to consider something because in this section of Scripture, we are confronted with a number of names. And when I started looking at these names Something kind of emerged from these names, a fact that maybe you're very aware of, or maybe it's a fact that you've overlooked, or maybe it's a fact that you've never given much thought to. But I think it's a fact that brings up 
a very important hermeneutical issue for the book of Genesis. All right, stay with me here. All right? I want you to listen to me carefully. Whenever we read the book of Genesis, we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we judge the people in the book of Genesis according to scriptures that come later? In other words, we see someone in Genesis doing something like, well, that is wrong because, well, in Exodus, that is condemned. Or in Deuteronomy, that is condemned. Or, and we go to other scriptures and say, see, what they're doing here is sinful. Is that the right approach? Now, what I have seen in preaching and teaching in churches all over the place is kind of a schizophrenic approach. It's very inconsistent. There are times they'll say, well, that wasn't sinful because there had been no law given to condemn that. And then the very next chapter, they'll they'll preach a sermon showing, see what this individual did? That was sinful and wrong. And I want to raise my hand going, and was there a law given to condemn that at the time as well? It's like, why are we condemning them here, but excusing them there? Let me just give you an example, right? So that you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. You'll see this. And, 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 and I love, one of the things I love about doing the Bible study exercises, and of, I, look, let me apologize. If you're brand new and you've never listened to any of the Bible study exercises, and you're like, what is going on? The Bible study exercises, we take one passage of scripture, we spend the entire week studying it, talking about it, questioning it, tearing it apart, understanding it, observing it, interpreting it, And we spend an entire week working on it. And there's Bible study curriculum and everything. If you want more information about everything we do, just email me, newsif at yahoo.com. I can get you a link to the Bible study curriculum. And all you need to do is just subscribe to the podcast and start listening and start participating. It's, It's really that simple. And you don't have to pay any money. It's all free. But one of the things I love about the Bible study exercises is you never really know what direction things are going to take us, right? That's one of the things I love about it. It's like, okay, this week we're going to study this. And then as we get into it, it's like, it's so, it's just so interesting to me where we may end up, where what you are talking about or the questions you may have. And so every week it's a new adventure and I love that, and hopefully you love it as well. So, so we're getting ready to take a little detour, but in, in some ways it's not really a detour. It's just kind of where this week's study is taking us. So are you ready? Okay, so here's what I want you to consider. Right, the book of Genesis. How do we judge the actions of the people in Genesis in a biblical, logical, consistent way? Right? Because when we read the Bible, we're very quick. I mean, I think this is just kind of built into us. We read what someone does and we immediately say, that was wrong, that was right. That was sinful or that was godly. No matter what they do, we, we, we assign some kind of moral judgment to their actions. You do it, I do it, preachers do it. Right? Like, look at what this person did. And then the sermon will go, see, that was wrong. You don't do that. You avoid that. And it's it's very much preached in that kind of way over and over and over again. I'm not saying that it's always wrong. I just think sometimes we don't take any thought to the inconsistency that we apply to the book of Genesis. And you see this in Genesis chapter 4. Cain murders his brother Abel. He is judged by God. And then we read this, verse 16, Genesis 4, verse 16. 
Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And you're like, wait a minute. So, okay, wait, wait, where did Cain get his wife? Where, where, where did Cain find a wife? And there's been all kinds of discussions about this, but a typical explanation of where Cain found a wife, because if you read it, I mean, it, where, where, did, where, where did a wife come from, right? Where did a wife, wife come from? So let me just give you an example of how this is often handled, all right? Uh, if I can find the book here. I have right here next to me the Genesis record, the Genesis record, a scientific and devotional commentary on the book of beginnings by Henry M. Morris. I'm opening it up. And guess what we're going to find here. All right, here we go. Uh, Page 143. Page 143, we read these words. In order to get this process of multiplication started, of course, at least one of Adam's sons had to marry one of Adam's daughters. Probably in the first generation, all marriages were brother-sister marriages. In that early time, there was no mutant, there were no mutant genes in the genetic system of any of these children, and so that no genetic harm could have resulted from close marriages. Many, many generations later, during the time of Moses, such mutations had accumulated to the point where such unions were genetically dangerous so that incest was therefore prohibited in the Mosaic laws. Now, a lot of people would say, well, so Cain most likely was marrying a sister or was marrying probably a sister, someone who came from Adam and Eve. So that that he married a sister and it's okay. It's okay because the Mosaic laws had not been passed yet. There was no dangers genetically, so it was perfectly okay. It was perfectly right. All right, everything's good, and everybody's like, amen, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining it, Pastor, because I didn't know where Cain found his wife. And everybody's like, great, wonderful. Then we move right into, (laughs) we move further into Genesis, and then we'll see people commit different acts and, and do different things. We'll say, well, that's a sin. That's a sin. Like, wait a minute. Had the Mosaic law been passed yet? Now, we excuse Cain for marrying his sister because the Mosaic law hadn't been passed yet. But then we'll get it later into Genesis and we're like, well, wait a minute, that's a sin according to the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law hadn't been passed yet. Now, listen, there are some situations where God steps in and clearly what they did is viewed as sinful because God condemns it. But if God doesn't condemn an action, if there's no judgment placed on the action by God, do we still say it's sinful? When, when Abram tells the lie, hey, hey, Sarai, she's, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Now, we usually condemn that, that he lied. Well, was, it, was it a sin? It, was there, had there been a law passed about lying? When Abram uh, goes, uh, goes, into, uh, goes to sleep with Hagar uh, to produce a child. Now, was it, a, was it adultery? 
when they end up with multiple wives. And someone said, well, they end up with multiple wives. That's wrong because you can go back to the early part of Genesis. Okay, but I'm saying some of these things are not fleshed out yet as a law until you get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As you move forward into the Old Testament, then you start realizing that these actions are condemned specifically by God. How do we judge it before then? Now you say, well, what does this have to do with what we're studying this week about hard times in Genesis 41. Well, it has everything to do with some names. There are some names that are handed to us that brings up at least something about Joseph. Some people may say what Joseph did here was, well, it was out of necessity. He had no choice. Well, he didn't have a choice. Could he, could he have refused and then it just accepted the consequences and the punishment? Or was what he did not wrong? Some will say, well, it was wrong because in Deuteronomy, it's condemned. Or, or in, uh, and, and, and not just in Deuteronomy, but in other parts of the Bible, it's condemned. But yet, that's, that hadn't occurred yet. So how do we judge these actions? Here's what I'm referring to. Go to Genesis chapter 41. Go to Genesis chapter 41. This will make some sense. Here we go. Genesis chapter 41, we'll go to verse 37. Now, remember, Joseph was the favorite son. His brothers hate him. They, they throw him in a pit. They're going to kill him. They decide to sell him. He becomes a slave. Now, he's, he ends up in Egypt. Then he gets falsely accused, gets put in prison. Finally, he's out of prison. And now everything's going well. Pharaoh seems to you know, really love and respect Joseph. Everything's going great for Joseph. And here's what we read in Genesis 41, 37. And the things was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this is a man in whom the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none to dis so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house. And according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Joseph basically becomes second in charge of Egypt. All right. So everything's going great for Joseph. And notice what happens here in the middle of this time where everything seems to be going great. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, see, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here we go. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot and all the land of Egypt. Now, verse 45 contains a number of names. And I want you to consider each name, right? Now, I could just jump right to where I want to go, but we'll just take this slowly. And let's consider each name mentioned here. We'll see if there's any significance to the meaning of their names anything here that we think is important to look at. The first name, obviously, in the next verse, verse 45, is, and Pharaoh called Joseph. So let's stop right there. The first name we have here is Joseph. 
Now, it seems almost everyone agrees that Joseph's name means uh, he added, or some will say Jehovah has added. Right? That's kind of an interesting idea that it seems that wherever Joseph is, there, there, in a sense, there is an addition. God adds blessing to that situation. I, maybe, I, maybe that's significant. Maybe it's not. But clearly, Je- uh, Jehovah has added seems to be the basic meaning of, of Joseph's name. Some dictionaries don't have Jehovah has added, just has he added. And who's the he? Well, it's understood by many that that's referring to Jehovah or God has added. Right? So that's Joseph's name. But Pharaoh changes his name in verse 50, or verse 45, I should say. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnoth Paniah. Zaphnoth Paniah. Zaphnoth Paniah becomes his name. All right. Uh, uh, Zaphnoth Paniah. All right. I think this is uh, uh, Zaphnoth Paniah, if I said it incorrectly. I want to correct it. Zaphnoth Paniah. When, when I'm looking at the word, I can say it. When I just try to remember it, I forget it, all right? Zaphnoth Paniah. Now, the name seems to mean, at least in, of course, a one source, uh, treasury of the glorious rest. Zaphnoth Paniah, treasury of the glorious rest. That seems to be at least according to one source. Now, this would seem to indicate that basically Joseph He's a source of great rest and, and people can relax because Joseph is in charge and blessing follows him and he seems to understand what to do. We can rest because Joseph is here. Kind of that idea. Now, if we look at the name and a Bible dictionary, we read these words, right? Zaphnoth Panea, right? Zaphnoth Panea. The Hebrew form of the Egyptian name given to Joseph by Pharaoh when the king of Egypt raised Joseph to the rank of prime minister of the kingdom. Zaphnoth Paneah. Now, they don't, they don't give us any meaning here, but if you look up in some other sources, they give the idea. I think if you look up in the interlinear, uh, the Hebrew interlinear, you'll, you'll find this concept of treasury of the glorious rest. Right, so we have Joseph, Jehovah adds, Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to Zaphnoth Paneah, treasury of the glorious rest. Okay, all right. Now, you could argue, well, he's, a, he's able, in a sense, to bring rest because Jehovah adds. Jehovah's guiding and blessing Joseph, all right? Okay, and Pharaoh at least recognizes, at least in part, what is happening here. But then... Something very interesting occurs. Here we go, back to verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnoth Paneah, and he gave to him to wife, Asenoth. Asenoth. Now, Asenoth is a wife given to Joseph by Pharaoh. Now, immediately you should start asking some questions. Well, wait a minute. Is, is she's not obviously a believer in the true God. Wait, wouldn't she be considered like a foreign wife? Wouldn't she be considered he's marrying a pagan? He's marrying a strange wife, a strange woman. I'm, I'm using language used in other parts of the Bible where there is warnings against this. 
Hey, hey, do not do this. I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord thy God, this is verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land where thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. All right? So that's the Hittites, the Gergashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I just wanted to make sure I could say them a second time. All right? All right. So all of these ites, hey, when you come into the land, you're going to come into the, uh, when you come into the land where thou goest to possess it, hath cast out many nations before thee. All right? There's all these nations going to be cast out before thee. All right? Because these nations are greater than you. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, that thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. And here's where we start getting this concept. Verse 3, neither shall thou make marriage with them thy daughters. Thou shalt not give unto son, nor his daughter shall thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me. And this begins to set up a principle that goes out, goes through most of the Bible is the idea you cannot take a, a foreign wife. It'll, they'll turn your hearts away from the true God. And we see this happening in the life of Solomon as we get further into the Bible. You, you see this. This is just a, a constant warning about being unequally yoked with an unbeliever because they will turn your heart away from the true and living God. Now, you may think I'm being a little too harsh on fair on Joseph's wife, Asenath. You may think, man, I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that's right. Well, her name, Asenath, means, according to, I think, the interlinear, belonging to the goddess Neith. That's N-E-I-T-H. It's pronounced Neith, N-E-E-T-H is how it's pronounced, Neith. She is, she, now, now you say, well, belonging to Neith, the, the goddess Neith, what is that? Well, here's a little bit of information about the goddess Neith. All right. Neith, sometimes spelled N-E-I-T, is an ancient Egyptian goddess who was the patroness of the city of Sias in the Nile River Delta. Neith was worshipped as early as the pre-dynasty times, and they have around 3000 BCE, and several queens of the first dynasty, uh, 2925 to 2775 BCE, uh, uh, were named after her. She also became an important goddess in the capital city of Memphis. Her principal emblem was a pair of crossed arrows shown against the background of a leather shield. A further emblem was a bow case, which the goddess was sometimes depicted wearing on her head in place of a crown. But Neith was usually depicted as as a woman wearing the red crown associated with Lower Egypt, holding the crossed arrows and a bow. In mythology, she was the mother of the crocodile god Sebek and later of Re, R-R-E, Re, the worship of Neith Neith was particularly prominent in the 26th dynasty, dynasty, 664 to 525 BCE, when uh, Egypt's capital was located at Sias. Now, there you have it. She's, her name is associated with an Egyptian goddess, with a pagan deity. 
So he marries a wife who's associated with a pagan deity. He's marrying a pagan. I mean, there, there's, there, I don't think there's a lot of way to get around that. Um, if we look up, uh, look up Asenath and the Bible dictionary, let's see what the Bible dictionary has to say in regards to her. See if they bring up any connection here at all. Now you say, well, it may not be any big deal. I understand. You, 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 can, you can come up with all kinds of ideas. Here we go. Asenath, the Egyptian wife of Joseph and the mother of two, two, two of the sons. We won't get into their names right now. Asenath was the daughter of Potipharia, priest of On. Pharaoh himself may, may have arranged the marriage between Joseph and Asenath to help Joseph adjust to life in Egypt. So they don't give us, they don't associate her with any Egyptian deity. They, they, don't, they don't mention it in the Bible dictionary, but they do say, well, the, uh, um, let's see here, uh, Pharaoh, I was going to say Potiphar, Pharaoh arranged it so that he could adjust to life in Egypt. Hey, I know life's going to be hard here for you. Hey, here's, here's an Egyptian woman who's connected with an, an Egyptian deity. See, this will help you adjust to life. Now, was it wrong? Do we condemn it? Or do we say, well, no, there was no law against it. All right, now, remember, every time you say that, you have to apply that same principle of interpretation to all the rest of Genesis. To all the rest of Genesis, you have to say, well, that was horrible. That was horrible. That was, okay, well, wait a minute. You're saying that's horrible because you're borrowing from the condemnation of that practice later on. Was the practice being condemned in the text or does it just record the action? And if it just records the action, can you condemn it? Because he marries here a, uh, an, a, an Egyptian woman. Again, her, her, her name is connected with the... Uh, Egyptian deity, Neith. So let's go through these again. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name. Joseph is Jehovah adds, right? Jehovah has added, right? Then his name is changed to Zaphnoth Paneah, a treasury of the glorious rest. Then uh, Pharaoh, I keep, I keep wanting to say Potiphar for some reason. Pharaoh gave him uh, uh, to wife, Zephaniah, right? Zephaniah, a treasury of the glory, or and I'm sorry, let's read this again. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnoth Paneah and gave him to wife Asenoth. Asenoth, we don't really, I don't have anything that gives me the actual meaning of her name, but, she, but it basically seems to just mean belonging to the goddess Neith. In other words, it seems to imply that the child had been dedicated to the goddess Neith. I cannot 100% be dogmatic about that, but that's what the name seems to imply. Seems to imply that, hey, this child has been given to the, she's, she's, uh, belongs to the goddess Neith. Our child belongs to this goddess. Clearly demonstrating a pagan mentality and a false god. Now, Joseph marries her. Now, you could say, well, he didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice probably if he wanted to live. Okay, maybe, or maybe he did have a choice. I mean, he, he's getting ready to put, be put second in charge. Couldn't he tell uh, Pharaoh, uh, no, thank you. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't want to marry her. Could he not have done that? 
I mean, we're doing a lot of speculating there, but I'm just saying it's just, it's like, did Joseph do the right thing or the wrong thing here? And the reason I bring it up is because so many times in Genesis, it's just so weird. Like, we'll, 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 we'll pronounce a moral judgment on one thing and say, that was sinful. And then some, something else will say, well, you know, okay, he married his sister. That's okay. And it's like, well, wait a minute. When, when, so so how, when do we, how, what are we basing our moral judgments on when it comes to the book of Genesis? These are, these are some important hermeneutical questions. All right. Now, go back to Genesis 41, verse 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name zathnoth paneah He gave to him to wife Asenoth, the daughter of, and then here is a very important name that we want to look at. Uh, the name is Patipharia. Patipharia, Patipharia. Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. Patipharia, Patipharia. Wow, what a name. All right, so because Asenath is the daughter of Patipharia, priest of On. So she's the daughter of the priest of On. Now, this gives us a little information of what's going on here. Now, Patipharia means, Patipharia means, in whom the raw gave, all right? Now, Ra was the ancient Egyptian deity of the sun. By the 5th dynasty and the 25th and 24th centuries BC, he had become one of the most important gods in the ancient Egyptian religion. Identified primarily with the noonday sun, Ra was to believe to rule in all parts of the created world. So Joseph literally finds himself and a pagan family. Uh, okay, someone just asked, is this where we draw a difference between ceremonial, judicial, and moral law? The laws for the set, the laws for the set-apart Jews did not exist, but moral law, like when Cain murdered Abel, has always existed. Now that that's that's a good question. Do do we just is this a situation where we look to Moral laws, anything that would that would be a part of what's a moral law, we can condemn that in Genesis because in a sense that moral law is seen as to have always existed, but anything that would be a ceremonial law or a law to set Israel apart from the other nations would not be in effect yet. So anything that's a moral law, we can say that's that we can condemn that. Cain killing his brother, that's wrong. Now, and, and Cain killing his brother situation, God steps in. So, so we know that what he did is wrong because God steps in there. So that's clearly condemned in the text. So in some cases, Genesis fixes it for us because God demonstrates his displeasure and he condemns an action. And then there's other times he doesn't condemn an action. So if he doesn't condemn an action, then do we step in and go, okay, that's the part of the moral law so we can condemn it. That's a that's a possibility bringing the distinction between ceremonial law and or or we could call it maybe not ceremonial law. I think we should draw a civil law. I think the civil law are some of the laws that set Israel apart. The ceremonial law was more about the ceremonies they practiced, the feasts they kept, the sacrifices. And then some of these other laws would be a part of the civil law for Israel, saying what they can and cannot do, who they can marry, and all of those different things. So this one, in a sense, would be, uh, it, would this? Would we be looking at this as Joseph marrying this woman? Is he violating a civil law that will be established uh, by God to Israel later to set them apart and what they can do when they go into the land? 
that, that that's a that's a possibility. That's a I, I think that's a, at least a workable solution. Now the issue we would have we would have to do is we would have to I guess we would have to try to demonstrate or try to prove in a sense that the moral law is in is in effect in Genesis. And if we say that moral law has always been in effect, I, I mean we would have to try to try to prove that. I think it's possible, but at least at least get you thinking in that direction. At least getting you think thinking in that direction. But let's go back to this. All right. So thank you, Will. That's that at least gets us going in a, a good direction and offers us a possible solution. Just when you think with the law, just remember three, three, we, we usually refer to it as a threefold division of the law. Moral law, ceremonial law, that's dealing with feast, sacrifices, those kinds of things. And then the civil law, those are the laws specifically given to govern Israel. And those civil laws are given to govern Israel to set them apart from all the other nations. And that would say who you can marry and who you're not marry. That, that would be one of those kinds of laws, all right? So let's go through this again, and I'll read a little bit more here about these deities and everyone involved here, all right? So Genesis 41, 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of, I always mess this name up, Potipharia, all right? Uh, Potipharia. I always want to say Potipharia, but it's it's Potipharia, priests of On, and Joseph went over all the land of Egypt. So he finds himself in a pagan family. He finds himself in a pagan family. All right. Now, uh, Potipharia, in whom the raw, in whom the raw gave, was an Egyptian priest of On father of Asenath, the wife whom Pharaoh gave to Joseph. Now, Ra was the ancient Egyptian deity of the sun. By the fifth dynasty in the 25th and 24th centuries BC, he had become one of the most important gods in ancient Egyptian religion. Identified primarily with the noonday sun, Ra was to believe to rule in all parts of the created world, sky, earth, and the underworld. He was the god of the sun, order, he was the God of the sun, order, kings, and the sky, all right? And I think it's interesting. I'm going to see here. I'm going to look something up. I didn't even think about this. Okay, I'm going to look it up. Okay, on, O-N, uh, see here. Well, that's interesting. When you look up, uh, I'm looking up all the list of the different Egyptians' gods. And um, whenever you look up, when you look up the names, give me here. I'm going to look at, this is interesting. Is he known as a different name here? Um, because I, I don't want to say this name because some, some of the sources seem to be connecting on with that. But others do not. Um, Yeah, I'm going I'm to be very careful and not say anything there because I like to be 100% accurate in what we say. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to mention this, all right? But it's just interesting that the text says, because some seem to associate the, with On with something else, but I'm not going to talk about it. Bottom line is, he's the priest of On. So Joseph is right there now in a pagan family with a pagan wife. 
Now, it's 1,000% correct to say, hey, the civil laws, that's what governed who they could marry. It wasn't a moral law. At any point, does marrying an unbeliever, does that, trans, does that transition from a civil law to a moral law? It, does it become a moral law? Like when you get to Corinthians, and you cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That clearly is now not a civil law. That's, that's, we would refer to that as a moral law, right? Because all the civil laws are done away with, right? We don't, we don't follow the civil laws of Israel. We, we focus on the moral law. So does that imply that that was actually a moral law? Or it was, did they take that moral law and then make it applicable to uh, all Christians? Or take that civil law and make it applicable to all Christians, then making it a moral law. Yeah, you you could you could really you could really drive yourself crazy trying to to figure this out. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to make now. I know, and Will, the one that's listening, he's already given me a lot of scriptures, and I and I already started looking at his scriptures and possibly making some of them them a memory verse for this week. But I'm going to do something. I know completely out there in left field, but I mean, everything we do here is out in left field, right? We don't do anything the way other normal Christian podcasts act. And I don't do anything normal here, even in this church. We're going to make, I know this is not, this verse will never show up in your memory verse pack that you buy from a Christian bookstore, but we are going to make Genesis 41, 45, a memory verse, because I just want you to know that Joseph's name, his Egyptian name is Zephnoth Paneah. I want you to know that. I want you to know that he was given to wife Asenath, who was the daughter of Potipharia. <laughs> yeah, even trying to memorize how to say the names is going uh, to be a challenging. Potipharia, when you look at it, it just, yeah, I don't, I, I guess it looks that way, Potipharia. I guess, I guess it does look that way, Potipharia, but it just, it just doesn't look that way. But uh, he's given uh, the wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharia, the priest of On, and Joseph went over over all the land of Egypt. I just want you to know about this element of Joseph's life because sometimes I think it's just kind of forgotten. It's almost like Joseph was in prison, bad things happen, he gets out, he becomes the second in charge. Joseph was awesome, he was godly, he was great. And I'm not in any way questioning his godliness. I'm just saying that this is at least an element of his life that sometimes I think may be overlooked. Now, I haven't looked at any of the commentaries to see if they condemn or excuse or ignore what Joseph marrying, um, and I have to look at her name again, uh, marrying Asenath. So let's just do that really quick. Let's just do that really quick. We'll, we'll we'll just do this. I think it'll it'll it shouldn't take very long to look at some commentaries. And this impromptu Bible study on a Monday. All right, here we go. Let's look at it. Here we go. All right. Okay, and just just so you see how this reads, and a number of the uh, uh well all the translations they give the exact same names. Okay, I want to make sure there was no differences in names. And all of them say on. Okay, so, all right. I wanted to make sure everything was the same there. Oh, well, there's a little different in the Aramaic Bible. Uh, oh, this, okay. Somewhat interesting. Uh, 
there, there's a lot of dis- a lot of people do a lot of work on making Joseph or, or saying that Joseph is a picture of Christ, and I there are obviously some very interesting similarities there that I don't think can just be you know ignored or overlooked. I, I think I think they're interesting. I think we just got to be careful. It, you know, is the story of Joseph there simply to picture Christ, or are there some similarities there that are very interesting? Right. I, I think there's 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 always important to to point out those similarities. I think it's how we point them out and not trying to make it like this is the purpose of the text, but I think it's important to, to point out some of these similarities. And Will just said, and I know I'm supposed to be careful with, with, with these comparisons, but Joseph, as a picture of Christ, Christ takes on a Gentile bride. Well, okay, let's put it this way. Christ, there are Gentiles in the bride, because the, the bride of Christ is made up of Jew and Gentile. And in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So both are there. So it, I, I say, I mean, at least Christ does, in a sense, Gentiles are a part of the bride. So it, it's made up of all, all different kinds of people. Uh, but okay, I, I, I can kind of see that. I don't know if that works perfectly here, but I think it's uh, that, that's at least interesting to bring, to bring that up. All right, but let's see what the commentaries have to say here. All right. All right. Uh, okay, they work on uh, his name, Zaphnoth Paniah. Uh, all right, that doesn't offer us. Now, okay, Zaphnoth Paniah, some of these say that it possibly means food of life or food of the living. All right, but, but they seem to be some, some possible disagreements here. Okay, uh, Okay, here, um, I'm looking here, I'm just looking. Okay, a difficulty has been felt by some, and a Hebrew shepherd being thus described as marrying the daughter of a priest of the son, and also that Joseph, a worshiper of the one God, should ally himself with an idolater. But the elevation of a slave to high rank is not uncommon occurrence in the East, especially as he might be of be of as good birth and education as his owner. Slave. Okay, let me read this again. So, so they at least acknowledge here that there's 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 some people find a difficulty in him marrying the daughter of the priest of the son, and also that Joseph, a worshiper of the one God, should ally himself with an idolater. But the elevation of a slave to high rank is not an uncommon occurrence in the East, especially as he might be of as good birth and education as his own owner, slaves being obtained either by kidnapping or by war. And a slave so raised to power would not likely uh, to oppose his benefactor, nor would even a high priest refuse a daughter to the king's favorite, especially if, as appears to have been the case, he had first been raised to the priesthood. Joseph, too, would rightly regard the whole matter as providential, and though he might not know for what exact purpose, as regards his race, he was thus exalted. There was noble work for him to do in saving Egypt from perishing by famine. The narrative throughout represents him as remaining true to the religion of his family. So basically they go with the idea, well, he probably wouldn't have had much of a choice and Joseph probably would have seen this as a part of God's plan. 
Okay, God, uh, in other words, the idea is that Joseph sees all of this as God working in and through it. And so he would just see this as a providential part of God's plan that he's getting a wife. All right, M- maybe, maybe that works. Um, at least so, at least they had, uh, tried to address it, all right? Um, it said, but probably on public occasions, he would be required to attend at the religious sol- uh, solemnities of the Egyptian gods. We must remember, however, that their worship had not degenerated, uh, degenerated, I should say, as yet into the miserable idolatry of latter times, and that the Egyptian creed contained much primeval truth, though in a corrupted form. So, So they're trying to say he may, Joseph probably would have even participated in the worship of these false gods, but, 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 but it really wasn't really bad yet. <laughs> okay. It wasn't, it wasn't really, 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 really bad yet. I, I think they're, I think they're trying their best to try to protect this here. Um, I look, here's my thing. I, I find it, sometimes I find it humorous the way, uh, commentaries work. If we really like the Bible character, man, we'll bend over backwards to try to defend them and excuse it and say, well, well, no, no, it, it, it can't be. It can't be that they did something wrong. And then in other cases, we're like, crucify him. That that Bible character is garbage. Everything they did was wrong. It's so weird how we just how we just work morality in some of these stories. Can we? Is, I know this may sound crazy. Joseph was a human being, and as a human being, we know he committed sin. I know, shocking, right? <gasps> I, I, he could have done things wrong. I know, shocking, right? Yes, he demonstrated high moral character over and over and over and over, and he demonstrated a great level of godliness. But the most godly person you know, there's still going to be sin and flaws in their life. So is it, do we need to justify this? Do we need to excuse it? I, I don't know. I, I mean, we would probably be shocked. I, I think if we went back in time and we were like looking at Joseph going, what in the world are you doing? You're in an, a, a worship service for an, a, an Egyptian god. Don't you know the true God? Now, some people say, well, he had no choice. Well, there's always a choice. May not be, may not be a pleasant one, but there's always a choice in a sense that he could have uh, refused. So I just think it's, <laughs> they're like, you know, well, the Egyptian creed contained much uh, primeval truth <laughs> before it was corrupted. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's just funny. Uh, and it says, for, as for Asenath, uh, his, his wife, no doubt Joseph would teach her higher views of the deity and make her acquainted with religious hopes and destinies of the Abrahamic race. Now, of course, a lot of speculation there. A lot of speculation. I mean, would you? Would you, go, would you go teach her that? And then she goes, runs, and tells her dad, who's a priest of On, okay, which I guess On, according to this dictionary, is basically the uh, Egyptian word signifying the sun, all right. So basically it's worshiping the sun. He's a priest of the sun, I guess. So the, the idea, you, you don't think she would go tell her dad, hey, hey, my new husband is telling me all of these crazy things uh, about his God and his God is not our God. Dad, can you go talk to him? You know, you know, you can almost like, you know, but they're like, you know, in, 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 in secret, he was like, he tried, he, he was a, he was a good evangelist in secret. I mean, like, I don't know. All right. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, uh, let's see here. 
They don't say much. I think they kind of just skip this. Um, I don't think they really want to. Uh, this one doesn't really want to get into to, to this. Um, I'm going to go look at parallel commentaries. So what else they have to say? Looks like a lot of these don't really want to get into. <laughs> doesn't want to really get into this here. Uh, okay. No, they don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> I just find it funny how some of them are like, yeah, we're just going to skip this. We're not even going to deal with it. No, I don't think here. Uh, no. I don't. Uh, I'm not seeing too many answers here. Uh, see here that, uh, no, it doesn't. Most, most try to, it looks like most of this try to spin this as, you know, Hey, this is, this was a good thing. Um, yeah, I don't think they, yeah, they, they don't seem to, uh, say much here and uh okay they uh okay it says here joseph was raised to as well as a more suitable to his character as a worshiper of the true god would not choose to marry the daughter of an idolatrous priest all right uh so they, they said he would not have chosen to do this, but obviously it was chosen for him, but obviously he could have, I mean, could he not have refused? Um, okay. Uh, okay, so that what they say here is that this would have been disagreeable to him uh, because he wouldn't want to be involved in this. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. It is funny how they just make up random opinions. It is funny. Uh, Twilight just said it is funny. And I'm sorry that there's like these delays here where I'm looking at some of this, but there's just so much to read through uh, that. I thought like so that first commentary, they just kind of had a whole section on it. Now all these other ones, they just kind of throw something in in the middle of it. But like they just say, this would have been disagreeable to Joseph <laughs> being an idolater. He could not, but he could not well refuse. So in other words, they're like, Joseph was like, man, no, I don't want to marry her. No, no, I don't want to marry her. I mean, she's, uh, she's, uh, you know, Asenoth. I don't want to marry her. She's, she's connected to the goddess of Neith. I don't want to do anything to do with that. And her dad, I mean, man, for crying out loud, she's the daughter of uh, Patiphoria. He's the, he's the priest of on. He's the priest of the sun. I, I can't be a part of this family, but I'll do it. I'll do it because, because I don't have any, I don't have a choice here. There's nothing I can do here. There, now I'm not saying that it would have, I'm not saying that it would have been easy to say, no, I refuse. I'm not going to do it. I, I, I'm not saying that would have been easy. Not saying at all that would have been easy. Um, he, he, he could have, uh, suffered greatly as a result of it. I'm not saying it would have been easy. I'm not saying that, you know, he, he's, he's a human being, right? He's a human being. And, uh, you know, 
Uh, human beings like to find, uh, you know, spouses and find uh, people to be with and find someone that they can love. I think that's a common, obviously, desire and feeling. So the desire is not wrong. I'm not necessarily trying to condemn it. I'm just saying what I'm trying to get you to do is to think about when you read Genesis and you get ready to make a moral judgment on an action, what are you basing it on? Now, Will gave us at least a possible a possible way to deal with it. Okay, well, if it's a moral law, it's wrong. If it's a ceremonial law or a civil law, then we won't condemn it. Okay, but then you get into a situation, well, wait a minute, who they could marry. It was a civil law, but does it go beyond the civil law and kind of just become a moral law that's supposed to govern all believers? That we're not supposed to marry an unbeliever? That, that seems to be the case. So then do we read that back here or do we go, well, wait a minute, We're in Genesis 41. None of these rules have been handed down, so we can't condemn him. Well, if we can't condemn him, then why do we turn around and condemn someone else and go, look what they did. Look what they did. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's it's just, it's it's really, it's really uh, interesting how that happened. But now there are some situations which is, is sometimes confusing. God does step in at times in Genesis and condemns actions as being sinful. So I think that would be, I kind of, I kind of asked the question, but let me now try to answer it. Will uh, brought up the moral law and I said, well, we would have to try to prove is the moral law in effect. And I think if we go through Genesis, we see God stepping in, in some very specific times, condemning action. And he seems to be condemning action based off some law, which would be kind of the moral law. He, he, he obviously seems to con- condemn the murder of Abel, right? That seems to work. Clearly, he's so upset with the entire world in Genesis 6. Now, some could argue, now this is very important. We could, we could throw this out there. I really, I'll really add a twist to this. Now, remember, there's a much debate on how to interpret Genesis chapter 6, right? Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, and it came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all the which they ch- chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Seemingly to demonstrate God is not well pleased with this action. Well, some people believe that the sons of God here are angelic beings having relations with the daughters of men, right? And there are some there's some biblical grounds to try to prove that concept. Others are like, no, 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 no. This is just the, the sons of God are, talk, are, are, inter, are marrying daughters of men, men who are women who are not saved, women who are not believers in the true God, that this is an intermarrying between believers and unbelievers, and God wasn't happy with it. Well, if that's how you interpret Genesis 6, if you interpret Genesis 6 as God condemning, the marrying of believers and non-believers, well, then you're going to have to condemn Joseph in chapter 41. <laughs> okay, so, so, but a lot of people was like, no, these are not angelic beings here. That's just ridiculous. They don't condemn Joseph in 41. <laughs> and you have to go, wait a minute. How does Joseph get off the hook here? Well, he had no choice. <laughs> so if I have no choice, then, I mean, I, think about it this way. In, in Gen- and earlier in Genesis, when he's 
when a woman is basically saying, hey, I want his 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 slave owner's wife says, I want you to sleep with me. And he refuses. Wouldn't wouldn't he putting himself in a very dangerous situation there? Couldn't he have said, well, you know what? I, I don't have a choice here. You're you're my master's wife. You're telling me what to do. I'm supposed to serve the household. I'll do whatever you want me to. I mean, I didn't have a choice. Why did why did why didn't that would that have work? If 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 he would have actually had relations with her, would people be like, well, you know, we didn't have any choice. But he marries an Egyptian whose whose name associates her with an Egyptian deity, and her father is a priest of of an Egyptian deity, and we are like, well. Uh, you know, uh, it's 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 all it's all fine, uh, and then uh, Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife and profited greatly for it. Exactly, Abraham lies and and profits greatly. God doesn't even condemn it. Now, again, I I think, and I think this is important. There, there, this is this principle that we just have to always. I'm just going to bring up this principle because I bring it up like fifty thousand times every time I teach. But I'm just going to bring this up again. I think some of the ways we understand some of these things that don't make sense in the uh, Old Testament, and when I say don't make sense, it's like, well, God seems to condemn this behavior, and he doesn't even condemn that behavior there. He seems to almost bless it. I think this is a very important principle. Remember, our our uh, God, first of all, will have mercy when he will have mercy. He will judge whom he will judge. But I think he, God, they, these Old Testament characters are operating under the concept of I believe in imputed righteousness. Abram believed God and he was declared to be righteous. So there's in many cases, just like in your life and my life, every time I sin, it's not like, boom, the, the, the ceiling caves in on me, lightning strikes, a plague of locusts swarms my house. It, it doesn't work that way. There are times I sin, nothing happens. In fact, things may go great. I may have a, you know, sin and you get a promotion at work. You sin and your wife makes your favorite meal. You sin and you open up your mailbox and some stranger sent you a thousand dollars. You're like, oh, I can buy that stereo equipment I want. Whatever the case may be, whatever. And you're like, wait a minute, but I sinned. I, this, this shouldn't be happening that way. I, one of the reasons I kind of love the way Genesis is written is like, it just shows that these people sin. And it doesn't show that every situation God steps in and destroys them or, and sometimes nothing even happens because, and that's, I think that's the reality we all, I think that's the reality we all experience because our relationship with God is based first and foremost on an imputed righteousness. And then there are times God steps in to chasten and there's times he doesn't chasten. And then even then we can't always determine when God is chastening or when we're just suffering because we live in a fallen world. But I think it's a lot like being a parent. I mean, I think sometimes you may offer punishment and sometimes you may just offer mercy. I think that's the way God deals with us. But I just think that if you if you condemn, if you say Genesis 6 is basically God condemning marriage between believers and unbelievers, then you got to condemn what Joseph does in chapter 41. And the no choice argument just makes no sense to me. When he's a slave and the slave owner's wife is like, Hey, be with me. He's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't. <laughs> he ends up in prison. So he was taking a, he was going to, in that particular case, he was taking a risk 
either way, but it could have been, well, if I, if I make, if I'm, if I do what she wants me to do, then I'll be, I'll, 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 I'll at least have a temporary reprieve. If I make her mad, you had to know that she was going to tell her husband something and you're going to be in trouble. So that, I, I just don't think it's, well, he didn't have a choice excuse. I just don't think that works. I just don't, I just don't make, when, when, when does you don't have a choice, the go to, the get out of free jail card. Hey, you didn't have a choice. That's okay. You're good to go. You're good to go. You're good to go. That's fine. That's fine. All right. Perfectly okay. Hey, I was with my friends, dad, and they, they were going to shoplift. And they said, if I didn't shoplift, they were going to beat me up. So I had no choice. So I had to shoplift. Hey, dad, I was with some friends and uh, they wanted to, you know, set this person's car on fire. And they said, if I didn't do it, well, you had no choice, son. It, it's okay. It's okay. Like, it just, I just seems weird that the commentators are so convinced that we've got to protect Joseph's character. We've got to. And I think possibly... I think possibly, I think possibly it's because we're so, people are so set on everything about Joseph has to match Christ because he's a picture of Christ. I think, I think sometimes we take that so far that sometimes we just can't be open and honest with his behavior. Like, you know, why, you know, the, the way in some ways he acted towards his brothers. Was that a, remember we even talked about that. Was that a good thing or a right thing? Like, what is he doing here? Because he's still, a, even if there are some things about his life that pictures Christ, that's great to point that out. But let's just make sure we never forget Joseph was a sinner. I've even heard preachers say, you know, in the Bible, we, we almost, for almost everyone in the Bible, we have some record of sin that they've committed. But Joseph, we don't have any record of any sin that he ever committed. I, I've heard that preached because then they're getting ready to preach a sermon showing how Joseph is a picture of Christ. But I'm like, I, whoa, you're almost making it sound like Joseph was sinless. Do you realize the theological uh, ramifications of such a statement. We, we get mad if someone says Mary was born without a sin nature, the immaculate conception, but Joseph, but that that's wrong. That's ungodly. But Joseph, it's almost like, well, we have no record of him ever committing a sin. Like, what are you trying to say there? Are you saying that he didn't have a sinful nature? Are you, are you saying the immaculate conception didn't go to Mary? It actually went to Joseph of the old Testament. Like that, 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 that gets into some really questionable theology right there. So I, I'm not saying what he did was wrong. I'm not going to say what he did was right. I'm saying that you've got to be consistent in your, your, in your biblical hermeneutic. If you're going to condemn other people for doing things that have not yet been condemned by any law, and you're using that a law that is revealed later to judge the people of Genesis— you have to be consistent in doing that. Now, you can draw a distinction between civil, ceremonial, and moral. That, that's at least, I think that, that helps clarify. Like, you want, every, you want every hermeneutical tool at your disposal. So that, that's a good one to use. Um, but if you're going to go to Genesis 6 and say the sin there is intermarriage between believers and unbelievers, then you got to condemn Joseph. And saying that he didn't have a choice makes no sense since earlier he made a he made a very risky decision um and saying no to his his master's wife, which then ends up in prison. So it seems like he's willing to take a stand. Now, here, should he have taken a stand? I don't I don't know. From a human perspective, it would have been foolish. From a spiritual perspective, 
does he even know that it's not right to do? Like, like the, the, some, some of the commentaries seem to infer that, well, he would have known that you don't marry an idolater. You, he would have known you don't do this. Okay, well, if he would have known it, well, then why did he do it? Well, he didn't have a choice. Well, he, did, he knew that he should not be sleeping with his master's wife. And he made a choice. So how come now that choice was, oh, see, that choice he had because he did it the right way. So then we're like, see, and then this one, he possibly did it in the wrong way. I'm like, well, 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 it doesn't count. It didn't count. It didn't count. I I wish everyone would judge me that way. Man, I wish that'd be great if I could be judged in my life that way. Well, you know, that that situation, he didn't really have a choice. And, you know, well, you know, it it, it, it probably didn't count. You know, he probably, he probably hadn't read that part of the Bible yet. You know, (laughs) I wish, I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't usually uh, work that way in our life. So let's go back to Genesis 45. Go back to Genesis 45, or Genesis 41, I should say. Genesis 41, verse 45. Now, let's just read the verse. All right, man, an hour on this. I didn't even think it was going to go that long, but that's okay. It's, it's fun just to, I mean, this is why we do the Bible study exercises, because we can sit down and talk about these kinds of things that probably will be ignored by most people. All right, so here we go. We'll end with this. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, zaphnoth Paneah. And he gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. That is your memory verse this week. That's one of them. Will's given us a whole bunch of possible memory verses. He's given us. So if, if there's like 10 memory verses this week, you need to travel to Tennessee and find Will and burn his list because it seems like in Tennessee, it's a good place to go to burn some books. Okay, I'm joking, I'm joking, okay? But uh, there you have it, all right? Zaphnoth, Paneah, Asenoth, and Patipharia. Wow, wow, what a, what, what's some names? If you ever need some names, uh, that's, that, that's where to go, all right? So there you have it. Uh, let me know what you think about any of these things, because I want you to just realize that this has a lot to do with, well, how do we handle some of these texts in the book of Genesis? Do we judge them? Do we not judge them? I'm not saying that what Joseph did here is wrong. I'm not. I'm just saying that it raises questions. And at least one of the commentaries acknowledged, uh, at least one of the commentaries acknowledged uh, that there's people who have had trouble with this. I haven't looked on the... Uh, church fathers app to see if any of the early church fathers discussed this marriage. I haven't done that. So that's part of your homework. Look on the, 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 uh, the app with the church fathers commentary, early church fathers, and see what they had to say. And if you find any other commentaries on this, let me know. I haven't done any searching for, I hadn't even thought about looking at commentaries. I just wanted to bring this to everyone's attention and see what you have to say. All right, I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to go back home. All right. I'm going to go back home because my daughter just flew in from Boston and we're celebrating her birthday late uh, because her birthday was January the 31st. So um, I picked her up from the airport and said, bye, I've got to go to the church and talk about these Joseph marrying a, a pagan wife. And she didn't seem to care that I was going to go do that. So, but I don't know if anyone else is going to care that we just talked about and spent an hour talking about it, but it's in the Bible, so it's God's word, and it is profitable. And now I've tried to make it profitable because it challenges you on your hermeneutic to make sure you are consistent. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. 
I'll probably be back Wednesday. I probably won't be here tomorrow. And then Wednesday, we're going to try to have an in-person service is what we're going to try. So Twyla, you can let everyone know that you know. We're going to be trying having an in-person service at 7 p.m. where we can work on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's the plan for Wednesday night. Um, if anything changes, I'll let you know, Twyla. All right, everyone and anyone else listening who hasn't mentioned, talked in the chat, that's that's the plan if you are, well, if you're in the local area. All right, everyone have a great day. God bless.